What I want to do to set up this morning is, let me say this, I'm not a golfer, all right, so, so I excuse whatever ignorance I show about the sport here, but, but as we come up to the Masters, all right, it's one of the tournaments I actually like to watch, and it starts this week, all right? As we come up to Masters, the probably, almost certainly, most important tournament in professional golf. I mean, if you were a professional golfer and you could pick one tournament to win, I think that would be it. Um, aside from the $1.5 million purse, you get the, to wear the green jacket, you get fame and recognition instantly if you win a Masters tournament. So as I think about this week, and, and your Tiger's going to be in there, and other contenders are going to be in there, and all golf eyes will be fixed on it, I kind of visualize a scene, all right? In my imagination, I visualize that this week there is a qualifier, uh, an amateur qualifier named Joe. Uh, no one really knows who he is. No one knows much about him, but he makes it to Augusta to the Masters tournament. Um, he arrives there for the four-day tournament. The first couple of days uh, plays really well. Um, well enough to, to continue on to make the cut. And at that point, as an amateur and kind of a, a nobody, he gets a little bit of recognition, and the press uh, asks him about himself and where he's from and kind of what's his story. And he says, you know, I'm, I'm from Camden, Arkansas. I'm a self-taught golfer. I've only been playing for five or six years. I just love the sport. And when they ask him, now that you've made the cut, do you think you have a realistic chance of actually winning the tournament? He says, well... Yeah, I'm not really here to win the tournament. Uh, I'm here because I love golf and, and the amazing opportunity to play at Augusta with these, with these top players in the world. That's really why I'm here. Okay, so Saturday he plays well, climbing up the leaderboard, climbs up near the top of the leaderboard. In fact, on Sunday next week, a week from today, this is my vision, he and Tiger Woods are paired together in the last group. They are at the top. He's only three shots behind Tiger Woods. And as the round progresses, it is a dogfight. It is really close. And as they make the walk up to the 18th tee, they are tied, right? Now, this is golf news. Even non-golf channels are beginning to tune into this. Because either way here, we've got a big sports story. A, Tiger Woods wins, breaks his drought of not winning a major championship. That's huge news. Or B, this guy named Joe from Camden, Arkansas, who nobody's heard about, wins the Masters, and that is gigantic news. So there they go. They both play their tee shot sensationally. Second shots land on the green. But there's a difference. Tiger Woods, this is my imagination, says Tiger Woods is about 40 feet away from the hole. Whereas Joe from Camden, Arkansas is two feet away from the hole. So all of the pressure, believe it or not, is on the veteran, the number one ranked golfer in the world. He needs to, he has to hit a 40-foot putt in order to tie and, and go to a playoff because Joe over here has got a gimme putt. So Tiger lines up, studies, in order to amount of time to make sure he's got everything measured just right. Taps that putt. It rolls over the undulations of the green. It looks to be on a very good line. And then just before the hole, it veers slightly off to the right, 
just kind of tips the edge, but rolls on past a few feet. Wow. All Joe has to do is hit a gimme putt, a putt that I could probably hit two feet. So he studies, gets on his knee, kind of you know, imagines. He doesn't want to take anything for granted. Finally grabs his putter out of his bag, walks over. And instead of tapping the ball into the hole and winning the Masters, I imagine him picking up his ball and walking away. Yeah, people are quiet. People don't know what to think. Finally, as he's apparently headed out to the parking lot, he does turn to a camera and he says, you know, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ and I've had a great week here at the Masters. Sometimes, though, I think it's better just to come in second. He heads out to his car, throws his clubs in the back of his beat-up old Ford pickup truck, and heads back to Arkansas. All right. Tiger, who was devastated, now is more confused than anything. After a few minutes, after all of the conversation dies down and, and the pandemonium settles down a bit, he taps in his putt and he wins the Masters tournament. But interestingly, no one is talking about Tiger Woods. They're all talking about the fellow who walked away. Will this happen? No. Won't happen this weekend. But somewhere in the world of sports, at some point, something like it could happen. And I think it would be the greatest thing ever. I really do. And I wonder, why would people be in such a state of disbelief if something like this were to happen? Uh, it, and I think it's because our whole system, our whole way of thinking, and I'm talking about us as a country, as a culture, is predicated on doing whatever you can so that you finish in first place. We want to get ahead. We want to climb to the top. We want to gain importance. We want to gain a fortune. We want to gain notoriety or fame. And what if somebody was doing their best, was living at the top of their game, but they weren't interested in finishing first? They were interested in serving others. Well, a couple of little scenes First would be Jesus, um, who models this for us in his life of service. Um, you might remember immediately after his baptism, he goes off into the desert and he spends time in prayer, in worship, reflecting on his ministry that is now beginning. And at the end of those 40 days of fasting and reflection, Satan appears to him. The accuser appears to him and tempts him. That second temptation is, is quite a doozy. He says, look, if you'll just bow down to me, Satan says, then I will give you all of the kingdoms of the earth. I'll put a golden crown on your head. There will be no need for the rejection and the betrayal and the beating and the cross that you know is going to happen, Jesus. There will be no need for a crown of thorns if you accept my crown of gold. And Jesus says, no, thank you. I serve only God. My knees bow only to God. 
Let me tell you the story of another Joe, um, not the Joe the golfer from Camden, Arkansas, but Joe in the book of Acts. Let's go to chapter 4, verses 36 to 37. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, who the apostles called his nickname Barnabas, son of encouragement. He sold a field he owned, and he bought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. What we know from these few words as Luke introduces us to Joseph, to Joe, to Barnabas, we know that he was an outsider. He was sort of, I don't know that you would call him a nobody, but certainly not in the inner power circles of Jerusalem politics. He was from Cyprus, had a thick accent, couldn't tell you where the best barbecue in Jerusalem was because he wasn't from Jerusalem. He was not a, 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 a high up in the hierarchy of, of Judaism or anything like that. He was a Levite. He was a temple assistant. But here he is, Joseph, better known to us, of course, as Barnabas. And he is, comes onto the scene as this person, this man who is very much shaped by the gospel. Uh, very much a person who is choosing the way of the underdog. It's choosing to live upside down. The system may say X, Y, or Z. He says, I follow a different master. I follow Jesus. And if you're a disciple of Jesus, then the Spirit of God is at work in you, in your heart, in your mind, in your behavior, to make you into a gospel-shaped person. And Barnabas, I think, helps us see what that looks like, okay? Um, so what we want to do is talk a little bit about a gospel-shaped life. What does that look like? And when we're introduced to Barnabas in the book of Acts, Luke, the writer of Acts, tells us the very first thing is Barnabas is the first person mentioned by name who makes a major donation to the early Christian community. Um, Joe had sold his field and, and given and laid the proceeds of that at the feet of the apostles. So basically goes to the church leaders, sa says, here's a pile of cash, no strings attached, do with it as you see fit. Because in that community, there were people who had means, there were people who had properties, there were people who were gainfully employed, there were other people who were desperate. Um, who were needy, who didn't know where their next meal was coming from. So there is this spirit from Barnabas here of, let's see if we can use this to take care of some of the needs in our community. Right? Now, he really embodies a beautiful description Luke gave us in the previous couple of verses. So let's go, let's just jump back a little bit, rewind to Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to 33. This is from the message. Luke describes this community. The whole congregation of believers was united as one, one heart, one mind. They didn't even claim ownership of their own possessions. No one said, that's mine, you can't have it. They shared everything. The apostles gave powerful witness to the resurrection of the master, Jesus, and grace was on them all. So as, as Luke takes this beautiful image, and he makes it real, makes it specific for us, he singles out Barnabas as one of the individuals that was right at the middle of what this community was about. Now, Barnabas, the encourager, is an underdog, right? 
But he is not an underdog because he was born into poverty, born into slavery. He's not an underdog because he was physically disabled. He's not an underdog because uh, the deck was stacked against him. Barnabas is, is a different sort of underdog. He is an underdog because he chose to be. He chose the way of second place. He chose to live against the grain. He lived this gospel-shaped life. And when you are pulled into the gospel story, there are kind of two themes that are constantly emerging in your walk. They are passion for God and compassion for others. Passion for God, compassion for people. That's, that's our vision as a church here at Preston Crest, but we stole it. We ripped it off from Jesus, all right? Jesus said in Mark chapter 12 that life is all about fulfilling two commandments, loving God and loving others. That, that's what everything else hinges on. And, and, and so that's, those are the themes that emerge in the life of a gospel-shaped person. Now, I want you to write this down. We're going to look at just five um, attributes, characteristics of Barnabas that really set him apart and show us what this kind of life looks like. The first one is this. The gospel causes me to be generous, to be generous with my possessions, all right, to share, all right? Barnabas saw these needs. He saw that he could do something to help. One of the most beautiful things the gospel does for us is it gives us eyes to see the need of others and a heart that wants to serve that need. Um, also what we see, and this may be one of the most strikingly beautiful things about Barnabas that is really unique about him and that we need more of in our church um, it's number two here on your outline is that the gospel causes me to care for the outsider, right? The gospel causes me to care, to have a deep concern for those who are on the outside, who aren't plugged into God's family, who don't know people's names at church, all right? So there was this guy named Saul. You know all about Saul. Saul becomes Paul and becomes this amazing uh, apostle who is a spokesman for the gospel all over the Greek world. He plants churches. Um, he writes like two-thirds of the New Testament. Amazing person. But, but before all of that, Saul, if you'll remember, was a persecutor of Christians. Um, he was, he was a, a Pharisee, uh, an Orthodox Jew who took very, very seriously his faith. He believed that the church was an attack on that faith. And so he set about to destroy it arresting men and women, uh, assisting in executions of Christians even. This is Saul, but, but you know what happens. He's on the road to Damascus one time where he's going to go arrest a bunch of Christians, and on the road, he has a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. He sees the light, um, or is blinded by the light, either one. And he experiences Jesus. He chooses to bow his knees to Jesus, to become a disciple of Jesus, to put Jesus as Lord of his life. All right. So great, awesome, wow, one of the church's greatest enemies is now a member. So he heads on down from Damascus at one point, or, or from, where, from a different city, heads on down to Jerusalem, right? And he shows up, think about this for a second with me, Saul shows up at church on Sunday. Now let me tell you, the brethren weren't too excited this is the guy who had my cousin Eddie arrested, all right? This is the guy who had hundreds of people thrown in jail for following Jesus. And now he's showing up at church and telling us he wants to be part of our, wants to place membership at our church. 
they weren't excited about it at all. I mean, they're thinking you got to be crazy. There's no way we're letting this. This is probably just a scam so that he can gather more intelligence and do more damage to the church. But check out what happens. Acts chapter 9, verses 26, 28. This is my favorite part, really, of the story of Barnabas. The message says this. Back in Jerusalem, he, Saul, Saul tried to join the disciples, but they were afraid of him. (laughs) They didn't trust him one bit. Then Barnabas took him under his wing. He introduced him to the apostles. He stood up for him. He told them how Saul had seen and spoken to the master on the Damascus road and how in Damascus itself, he had laid his life on the line with his bold preaching for Jesus' name. After that, he, after that, Saul was accepted as one of them, going in and out of Jerusalem with no questions asked, uninhibited as he preached in the master's name. So how does, how does Saul make this transition from religious extremist or dare I say, religious terrorist, attacking innocent people, to being a member of the Jerusalem Church of Christ. How does this transition happen? Well, it happens because Barnabas vouched for him. It happened because Barnabas said, you know, I'm going to sponsor this guy. I'm going to take him around. I'm going to introduce him around. And it isn't Saul who's telling his story. It's Barnabas that's saying, let me tell you his story. And so Barnabas says, look, he's good people. His conversion is real. We need to embrace him as a member of the church here. So the gospel, the fact that Jesus chose to surrender his life for you, the gospel called Barnabas in this overflow of gratitude in this overflow of appreciation, to have a concern for outsiders. So the community in Jerusalem, think about it. The community in Jerusalem, with all of the persecution that was happening from their families, um, some of it was organized, some of it was just people didn't like the Christians. Um, It was a tight-knit church. It was a very tight-knit church in Jerusalem. I mean, we read what Luke wrote about them, their, their spirit of generosity, one heart, one mind, very tight-knit, okay? Well, it was hard to break in. You with me? It was so tight. It was so strong. The relationships were so deep there. It was hard for someone on the outside to get in on the inside. And I think probably a lot of churches see this. I think at Preston Crest, we certainly see this. I mean, one of our greatest strengths at this congregation is also our Achilles heel. I mean, it it is. It is that we have these relationships here at Preston Crest that have been forged through years and years spent together, years and years crying together, years and years rallying around each other. We have these connections or these, these Sunday school classes that are much more than classes they're little communities. They're little spiritual families where we do life together. And, each, and, and you know this. We talk about this sometimes. I mean, each Sunday here at Preston Crest, something like 80% of 
of those who attend the worship service are also in one of the connections, which is a remarkable statistic. I mean, most churches, it's about half that. And I don't know of any church who has 80%, all right? So it's great, right? I mean, this is an incredible strength we have. Yes and no. The problem with our deep relationships is that those who walk in here on Sunday morning sense that there is a love among these people um, that they really care about each other, but they don't necessarily feel it flowing out to them, right? They don't necessarily experience it for themselves, and they're not quite sure how to break in. And so I suggest that we need a church full of Barnabases. We need a church full of Barnabases. We don't just need a hospitality ministry. It's a good thing. It's an important thing. We don't just need a hospitality ministry. We need a hospitality spirit as a church where everyone is looking to warmly show the love of God to those who are new. And they may be old. They may be young. They may be wearing a tailored suit, or they may be wearing arms covered with tattoos. Um, (laughs) They may be socially awkward. They may be social butterflies. But the gospel caused Barnabas to care for an outsider named Saul, to bring him in, to stand by him, and to help Saul experience that love that was a hallmark of the early church. And this is the third thing I want you to write down. This is this leading up to this. It's, it's, it also caused Barnabas to really applaud the work he saw God doing, even if it wasn't specifically in his life. So number three, the gospel causes me to rejoice at God's work in the lives of others. Rejoice at God's work in the live, lives of others. The church in the first century, the church in Jerusalem, recognized that Barnabas was a special guy. That's obviously how he earned this nickname as the encourager. Um, They recognized that he was warm, that he was loving, and that he was flexible enough to love first and ask questions later. And so when the gospel in all of its power begins to to reach very different sorts of people, um, Barnabas is the one they select to represent them, the Jerusalem group, all right? For example, Antioch. Um, Gentiles are coming into the faith who forever have kind of been outsiders, have been excluded. All of a sudden, they're coming into the faith, and there are these rumors arriving in Jerusalem that, that there are all of these people accepting Jesus up in Antioch. And so check out the response of the Jerusalem Church of Christ, Acts chapter 11, verses 21 to 24. talking about Antioch, God was pleased. This is from the message. God was pleased with what they were doing. He put his stamp of approval on it. Quite a number of Greeks believed and turned to the master, right? Non-Jewish background here. When the church in Jerusalem got wind of this, they sent Barnabas. They sent Barnabas to Antioch to check out things. The guy does well with outsiders. He does well being flexible and adaptable. They sent Barnabas to Antioch to check on things. As soon as he arrived, he saw 
that God was behind and in it all, he threw himself in with them and got behind them, urging them to stay with it for the rest of their lives. He was a good man that way, enthusiastic and confident in the Holy Spirit's ways. The community grew large and strong in the master. Some folks tend to be suspicious when they hear of things happening outside of their group, outside of their circle, outside of their community. Others tend to rejoice in their own blessings, right? But can get jealous or feel threatened when they see someone else or another group being blessed, right? Not Barnabas. That wasn't Barnabas at all. Now, some of you may find this next characteristic of Barnabas to be a little, uh, well, boring, all right? But considering the number of, of um, CPAs we have at Preston Crest, accountants we have at Preston Crest, you guys will be absolutely thrilled by this, all right? So number four, the gospel compels me to act with integrity when I handle money. Integrity when I handle money. Um, Many of the brothers and sisters in Judea, in Jerusalem, uh, specifically, were passing through poverty, misery. When the Christians up in Antioch, this new church plant up in Antioch that Barnabas is helping with, when they hear about the needs of their brothers and sisters down in Jerusalem, they decide to take up a collection. Let's just pass the plate. Let's have a collection for the poor saints in Jerusalem. So there's this money that's collected. And then when it's time to get this money down to where it needs to go, they trust Barnabas to do that, right? They trust Barnabas to make sure the money gets where it's needed. Now, Saul goes with him at this point. We see Barnabas and Saul together a lot. Um, and just we'll talk more about this in a little bit. But, but at this point, Barnabas is mentoring Saul. Saul is his protege, right? But they are the ones trusted to take this money down and get it where it needs to go. The thing is this, when you've been swept up in God's story, when you realize what he has done for you, you realize the investment that God has made in you, then um, you, you realize you aren't in first place anymore, that you belong to God, your money belongs to God, your talents belong to God, your time belongs to God, and you think, how can I be a wise investor with the fortune that God has given me? How can I do a good job taking care of, multiplying that which God has put me in charge of? So what we see with Barnabas, he isn't just generous with his own money, but he is trustworthy with other people's money, right? Now, you may be thinking, uh, it's not necessarily a gospel thing. I mean, you can get... Right, you can get an MBA or you can have experience in, in accounting and, and get certified and all of this stuff. Um, that's just good business practice, handling money well. Well, here's what the gospel does. The gospel motivates and inspires you to handle money well. Degrees and experience positions, titles, CFO, CEO, they don't necessarily do that for you. You with me? I mean, Enron, anybody? <laughs> WorldCom, 
Bear Stearns, Arthur Anderson. I mean, you can be eminently qualified in terms of your knowledge and your skill set and your experience, but be completely unqualified in terms of your heart to take care of money, right? Um, you can have information without having transformation. That's what the gospel does. It transforms you. Um, when it's unleashed in your heart, you believe that God has made a serious investment in you, and you want to honor that by handling it wisely. And if you're a leader with handling other people's stuff wisely, the gospel also creates this spirit, this attitude where you begin, um, and this is number five this morning, where you begin putting an agenda ahead of your own, God's agenda. I mean, Jesus, remember the Jesus saying, seek ye first the kingdom of God? Um, that's in first place now, not my agenda. And so number five, the gospel fosters a sense of humility as I take second place to God's work. This is amazing. What I see in the relationship, what we experience in the relationship through the book of Acts between Barnabas and this new convert named Saul. Because what we see in this relationship is we see Barnabas vouching for Paul, sponsoring Paul or Saul. You know, his name gets changed. It gets a little confusing. We see Barnabas then mentoring Paul, teaching Paul. We see Barnabas then partnering with Paul as they become missionary teammates up in Antioch. So we see this evolution in their relationship where one is, 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 is mentor and one is apprentice. And suddenly, well, not suddenly, but over time, they become partners in ministry. And over time, Barnabas was able to see what you and I can see clearly with the benefit of hindsight. Barnabas was able to see that Paul was a very unique individual that he was being called by God to be a preeminent leader in the early church, a spokesman for the gospel in the Gentile world. And rather than Barnabas, rather than him reminding Paul, I'm the boss, right? I'm number one, you're number two. Rather than, than doing that, rather than reminding Paul that he's in charge, rather than resenting Paul because of his abilities and his influence, Rather than trying to hold Paul back, Barnabas quietly moves himself into the background. And what we see, this happened really, Acts chapter 13 is kind of the moment, even up to this point in the book of Acts, Barnabas' name has always come first. It's Barnabas and Paul. All of a sudden, in Acts chapter 13, about the middle of the chapter, now it's Paul and Barnabas. Barnabas quietly steps back and assumes a new role of supporting the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Few men can do this. Women might be better at this, perhaps. Few men can do this in a world where finishing first is all that matters. We're getting to the top of the pile is what counts. Few men can do this. The gospel, if it's unleashed into your life and allowed to run its course, makes you less 
and less interested in who wins and who gets the publicity and who gets the credit. So as Jesus takes over your life, you look for places where you can can let loose a first place so that you can serve others. Second place, so that you can lift up a friend, applaud a promotion of a coworker. Second place, with respect to your spouse, caring about their needs more than you care about your own. Second place, so that you can mentor and teach and shape and then launch someone to use their gifts and their calling in a way that perhaps you never could yourself. I wouldn't bet, I wouldn't bet on this master's tournament that's about to start, that on the last day, someone's going to, someone who has the game, the million dollars, the green jacket, all locked up, that they're going to pick up their ball and walk off. I wouldn't bet on that happening. But I would bet on a gospel-shaped person choosing to put passion for God and compassion for others ahead of their own personal ambition. It starts, I think, with a sincere prayer. God, make me a servant. Just destroy that need I have to finish first. I think it grows as we look for places to encourage others, to serve others, to serve the family of God. And as we look for outsiders and we help them move in to relationship with God and with his family. So if you're not a believer this morning, I think this is where it starts. It starts with you allowing Jesus to serve you. I think it allows with you saying yes to all that he accomplished for you, all that he won for you on the cross, accepting the gift from Jesus of of a life of significance here, a calling, and of eternal life beyond the grave. That's where it starts, letting Jesus serve you by saying yes to him, saying yes to his lordship in your life, because he is a servant leader.